Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, October 14th. So you've heard the bombshell from the January 6th committee. They voted to subpoena former President Trump to testify. We'll talk about that with NPR's Claudia Grisales in just a minute. But another new thing in their presentation that I think is worth drawing attention to was video from during the siege of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on the phone with Vice President Mike Pence. Now, the audio is not great here, but you can make it out more or less. As Pence tells Pelosi, the Capitol should be cleared of the rioters and Congress can come back and certify the election in about an hour. What's remarkable here is that Pence and Pelosi, from their different parties, are working together to end the threat that President Trump seemed to approve on. All right, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer chiming in there, too, and Mike Pence from during the siege at the Capitol on January 6th last year. The video was shot, by the way, have you heard this, by Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra Pelosi, who happened to be with her mom that day and who is a documentary filmmaker. She's been on the show. She wound up with a different kind of movie than she could have possibly expected, right? With us now, NPR congressional reporter, Claudia Grisales. Hi, Claudia. I know you've been going full tilt covering the hearing and doing the (laughs) NPR politics podcast and the spots for the news shows. So thanks for giving us some time, too, on WNYC. Good morning. Oh, good morning. So good to be with you. Thank you. Can I start with the Pelosi tape? I mean, the committee showed several scenes of footage that were each dramatic in their own way. But that one struck me because there's the Speaker of the House and the Majority Leader of the Senate and the Vice President of the United States trying to figure this out on their own when the president, who could actually call out the National Guard or call off the right with a tweet, wasn't doing it. Did they usually get along that well? You know, maybe you could say not very often. This was one of those extraordinary moments when you saw these congressional leaders huddling in this secured location, Pelosi, the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, and the Senate Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, and others just trying to, it, it, you could see the, the tone there, just frantically trying to get all the information they could, trying to find a way out in terms of how they could secure the the Capitol, and then finally get back to the work at hand, which was to finalize these results for the 2020 election. So no, very, very unusual and very striking to see them together in that in those frantic moments. 
Do you happen to know where Pence was during that phone call? Because famously, he refused to be driven away from the Capitol by the Secret Service. Right, exactly. Yeah, so he was also taken to a secure location nearby. Uh, We've seen images of him um, that he was not too far from the Capitol itself. He was pretty close. Um, But yes, it's it's striking in terms of of he made this decision uh, to remain as close as possible to where this siege took place. Largely, you can hear him in that phone call, in that audio, Uh, explaining how can we get back to work here despite this tremendous threat that we're facing at this very moment. And I didn't see in any of the footage that they played from the Alexandra Pelosi video, Nancy Pelosi and Pence kind of commiserating about Trump being AWOL from helping to end the siege. Do you know if Pence said anything like that to Pelosi in real time? No, that's that's one piece I'm less familiar with. I think we're all starting to learn more and more after yesterday, uh, uh, seeing and hearing from these moments behind closed doors that we didn't know how grave a threat this was. Uh, when you really listen uh, to the tone and the planning of these leaders from then Vice President Mike Pence to uh, to the House Speaker, to Nancy Pelosi, and, and just the efforts they were making to try and move law enforcement, additional law enforcement support in there to stop this attack. And about Pence refusing to get in the Secret Service car, January 6th Committee member Congressman Jamie Raskin, as you probably know, has said repeatedly, including on TV last night, that the six most chilling words that he learned of (laughs) in this whole investigation were Pence saying, I'm not getting in the car. And now they have new evidence indicating that some members of the Secret Service knew there might be plans to attack the Capitol more than a week in advance, but Secret Service members who have testified before the committee said they did not have advance words. So how much can you tell what actually happened there? Did members of the Secret Service commit perjury to cover up complicity with the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys or something like that? That I don't know. There, There's a lot of serious allegations surrounding all of this, in part because we have so many gaps in information. For example, as we learned this summer, the Secret Service did delete a race text messages on their phones, uh, key agents did, related to that time period surrounding the attack. And this goes to all of the questions we have now, which is, uh, what exactly was the Secret Service's role when it comes to those weeks leading up to the attack? What were they aware of? Um, and, and this goes to overall these broader security uh, failures in terms of intelligence failures. Uh, warning um, sufficiently that that everyone was looking at a serious threat approaching the Capitol uh, on January 6th, led by these extremist uh, Trump supporters. And it, it also goes to another issue I've been reporting on recently, uh, looking into, for example, the Department of Homeland Security watchdog. This agent, DHS is a massive agency, the third largest for the government. And their watchdog, and it includes a Secret Service, for example, so many agencies. Um, and their watchdog, for example, um, 
had battles, internal battles with his own staff, fighting them on requests to try and get, for example, these text messages. At one point, it was on the table uh, a year earlier to try and get these Secret Service text messages. Then it was taken off the table, and this watchdog did not tell Congress about it until a year later. And so that, once again, goes to these intelligence failures. What would have happened differently if people were uh, working more cooperatively before the attack, collecting this intelligence and sharing it in a broader sense. So these are all these extra questions that remain. They could outlive even the committee and be continued to look looked into after this committee disbands this year. Yeah. That thing about Secret Service text messages related to January 6th that have gone missing. Right. Do you know what that's about? So what happened was... Um, Secret Service says they went through a phone migration. This is what they told, for example, when the DHS watchdog agency, this is the inspector general, it's led by Joseph Kafari. Um, at earlier last year, these watchdog uh, staffers asked Secret Service to turn over these text messages. And so they were probably at the forefront of this ask in terms of committees that came weeks, months later. And then, of course, the Jan 6 committee started working on it last starting last summer. And so they were probably the frontliners in trying to get these text messages. And so Secret Service had said, we had a phone migration, but there was some confusion. What does that mean? Oh, it's maybe a device upgrade. It's a device replacement program. How do you lose text messages? Does that affect text messages? You don't assume that you're going to lose them. And so months later, they learned those text messages were indeed erased. And so there was a lot of negotiation, for example, between the DHS watchdog office and Secret Service to try and recover what they could, even trying to do a forensic analysis. And so fast forward to this past summer, Kafari, who is this inspector general overseeing DHS, finally tells Congress, oops, we don't have the text messages. And lo and behold, we learn later that uh, that the request was, was stopped at some point. It was taken off the table, then it was put on. And it wasn't just text messages. We're talking about emails and other Secret Service materials. And so this is a back and forth. So as of now, what we know is that many of those text messages that were of interest, that would have shed more light in terms of what Secret Service agents were seeing, what they knew of ahead of the attack during the day of, that we may never see some of those messages because they may be lost for good. There may be no way to recover them forensically um, for the public to see. We're breaking down yesterday's January 6th meeting and presentation with NPR's Claudia Grisales. A couple of tweets coming in, Claudia. Somebody writes, I loved in that footage when Nancy Pelosi said, this is in real time during the siege, if Trump came to the Capitol, I'd punch him out. I didn't see that. Is, was that in the footage? Uh, no, that was not played yesterday. Uh, I kn- I believe CNN played that additional footage last night. I see. And so, yeah, so, so we're starting to see video of these closed-door moments, very private moments that we did not hear about before. And, yes, this is one additional scene that did come out uh, later last night, 
uh, on CNN. And it's just one of those videos that has gone viral. There's a lot of interest because there's a, a long history there between Pelosi and Trump. Who can forget that moment she tore up the speech at his State of the Union address as he right. was standing in front of her and she was behind him. And so it, it, it Pelosi herself, we haven't seen her express those kind of thoughts in public much. And so, um, yeah, maybe it's not too far-fetched, too surprising to hear her say those words when it involves the former president as they had such a contentious relationship. And then somebody else tweets uh, reacting to my reaction to Pelosi and Pence working together to reopen the Capitol and get that vote certification going again. Listener asks, why call out that members of different parties work together to resolve the issue? Sure, they work together trying to save their lives, which is a fair observation. Um, But I would say that it still struck me as kind of remarkable because we know now that there were a lot of Republicans there who may not have been so interested in restoring normal order and going on with certifying the election. Uh, that Maybe this is a hypothetical, but for you as a congressional reporter, um, do, you, do you think there were a lot of Republican members who did then return to the Capitol and voted not to certify the election, um, who kind of were with delaying the procedure and would not have worked with Pelosi to restore order the way Pence did? Uh, Yeah, I think there was that contingency of House Republicans who were not interested in completing this finalization of of President Biden's win, this this certifying of the election's results. And so I, I, I go back to one of the first hearings this past summer for the Jan 6 panel when we heard Bill Stepien talk about there was team normal and team crazy and people have taken their places since to say what team they were on and so this would be the group of House Republicans that likely would have been pegged as part of team crazy that they didn't want to see uh, President Biden's win finalized they wanted to find any way possible to keep pushing this effort to undo the election's results and it is it is really remarkable how close uh, folks like them and others who wanted to see this happen came close to making that happen, to stopping the proceedings. But there were so many decisions along the way, as we saw in this additional footage from yesterday and and heard from these members, there was a lot of decisions that in the end um, allowed Congress to return and and finish the work at hand that day. Jack in Rockland County, you're on WNYC. Hi, Jack. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, Quick observation here. I, I uh, I'm a retired U.S. Marine. I, uh, I was appalled at the events on January 6th, much like I was appalled with the events of 9-11. Of course, there wasn't the loss of life on January 6th, but, but the symbolism was, was there. It gave aid and comfort to our enemies around the world. I'm equally appalled that my Republican friends, and I have many, don't seem to think it was that big of a deal, and, and, and that's frightening. Um, uh, Mike Pitts, uh, specifically, uh, I, uh, from what I've seen, uh, tapes and heard, he was running for his life that day and came very close to losing his life. I assume that if he runs for president and his future in politics, he's going to campaign. We as Americans and Republicans cannot allow him to get on the stage during a debate or the campaign and just simply say, as I assume he will, I'm not here to talk about the past. I'm here to talk about policies and move the country forward, which is, of course, 
um, admirable, but that particular day, we need to hear from him what he was thinking, where his allegiances lie, and uh, he also showed great courage uh, by showing up on the on the podium the day during the uh, the inauguration. But that particular day, Americans need to hear from him. You were running for your life. Uh, I want to know what role you played, how you uh, uh, how you feel now about the administration and uh, and going forward. Thank Jack, you very let much. me let me stay there for a second because let me play you a clip yes, of yes. Pence, something that he has said since uh, that, of course, made a lot of news. And tell me how much this kind of cleans his image for you. Here is Mike Pence talking about what Trump wanted him to do on January 6th, not certify the election. President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. And they played that clip in the hearing yesterday. Jack, you're familiar with it? No, I haven't heard that, but uh, that's the Mike Pence I want to I want to support. That's the Mike Pence who has a U.S. Marine Corps son. Uh, uh, but yet, for four years, as he served Donald Trump, uh, he seemed to fawn and defer. And it's just not going to be enough for me as he campaigns to not want to talk about that day. Uh, but that does a, uh, that does that does sound like the strong Mike Pence, and I want to believe it exists. Uh, who showed up on the podium the day of the inauguration. Um, so, yes, mm-hmm. thank you for playing that clip. Thank you very and, much. And thank you very much for calling in. Let's hear the final bit of business from the committee and maybe the biggest news from yesterday's hearing. This afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. January 6th committee vice chair, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming, with a bombshell at the end of the presentation yesterday, they voted to issue a subpoena to Trump to testify before the committee. This is going to Donald Trump himself. Nobody knew this was coming outside the committee itself. Claudia, just on the logistics Can the committee subpoena Trump on its own, or is that a committee recommendation that now goes to the full House? So this is a pretty technical process in terms of how this will work. Uh, We're still waiting to hear uh, from the committee on next steps. For example, oftentimes when the committee announces a public subpoena, as they did last night, that they would be issuing it, it will include a letter that accompanies the subpoena, detailing why the subpoena is being issued, uh, questions about uh, issues they want to address with the witness. And so there is a series of steps that needs to be followed. There is not a lot of precedent for this. And so that needs to be um, that needs to be shared in terms of how the committee uh, goes forward in terms of issuing the subpoena. So there's some questions still to be answered, as well as regardless of how it is issued, 
Um, the questions, the legal battle that could be ahead. As we know, the former president already responded very quickly on his social media app, calling the panel a, quote, bust, and and just attacking the panel as he has before. And, and whenever these questions come up for him to testify, for example, before Congress, it, it doesn't happen. And so it seems very unlikely uh, for us to see that happen. But yes, it's going to be interesting to watch all the steps to come when it comes to issuing the subpoena and and what will follow after. Trump did say something or tweet something or not on Twitter, but on his own social media. I'm not sure where this was, but something yesterday about wanting to testify. Did you see that? Yeah, so there have been moments where uh, the former president has teased that he would like to appear for for various uh, testimony. We have seen this play before. So it could be just more of the same in terms of teasing that interest. But again, it often ends up with the former president declining to appear to testify. And, and that's why that's the expectation once again this time around. I thought one of the highlights yesterday was an edit of William Barr specifically debunking election fraud claims and then Trump repeating them anyway. Here's an example. Here's an example of that. I went into this and would, you know, tell him how crazy some of these allegations were and how ridiculous some of them were. Uh, I'm talking about some of them's like, you know, more votes more absentee votes were cast in pennsylvania than there were absentee ballots requests you know stuff like that it was just easy to blow up there was never there was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were there were more votes than there were voters think of that you had more votes than you had voters that's an easy one to figure and spy the thousands. And that's how they played it in the committee presentation yesterday. Mm-hmm. Barr there, followed immediately by Trump. Did they establish a timeline, Claudia, that Barr had advised Trump that that claim was fake before the Trump clip? So in terms, I cannot remember when that clip was dated. Was it December? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So it's possible. uh, What we understand is that Barr was raising these concerns by December. It's spoken to the Associated Press, and that was infuriating for the president that his attorney general has stepped out in such a way and rebuked these claims of fraud. And so it's possible that uh, word of that was, was reaching the White House even before uh, the then president was making those kind of remarks. And as we saw, that's a theme that's been repeated over and over that advisors, that uh, top cabinet officials were telling then President Trump that there was no widespread fraud, that these were conspiracy theories trying to pull him back into reality and that he was still, even after all those efforts, even as he acknowledged at some points, as, as we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson, the White House aide, uh, yesterday as well, running into him saying, I don't want people to know we lost, that he was aware of, of this loss, but yet he continued to push forward with these false claims. Well, the story's not over, but the segment is. 
So <laughs> on <it>. we go. <laughs> and we thank NPR's Claudia Grisales, still full of energy, spitting vinegar, <laughs> uh, despite logging the hearing. It's exhausting. I was doing it too, right? You oh, Were you there wow. in the hall? I was just watching television, logging sort of minute by minute, you know, and then figuring out what clips of tape to pull. And you're doing it in there, and you're probably going and interviewing people afterwards, and then creating all these reporter pieces for NPR and doing the politics podcast. That's a work day. It is a work day, but lucky for me, there's a huge crew so we can trade off. You know, for example, my colleague was on the Hill in the room yesterday while I was in studio uh, at our headquarters. So, and we have a lot of folks helping out. So that's the beauty of it. We can all trade places and and help each other out. So that is key. NPR congressional reporter, Claudia Grisales. Thanks so much. Thank you. Great to be with you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.